Welcome to the Health and Wellness Show, everybody. Today is Friday, May 18th, 2018. My name is Jonathan. I'll be your host for today. And joining me in our virtual studio from all over the planet, we have Elliot, Erica, Tiffany, and Doug. Hey, guys. Hello. 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 Hey. So we're missing Gabby today. Uh, we wish her well, and uh, hopefully we'll see her next week. She's probably um, sleeping. Probably, hey. <laughs> <laughs> Which is what we're going to talk about today. Um, so... Uh, the, the one thing that we spend, you know, the most, uh, time out of our life doing pretty much except for, you know, being awake, not to be a no brainer <laughs> is, uh, is sleeping uh, about a third of your life. Uh, and we're the only mammal that willingly delays sleep, which is kind of interesting. And I think that's the crux of, uh, our discussion today is this, uh, ability or handicap, however you want to refer to it to, uh, to kind of consciously manipulate our own sleep patterns. Um, but it leads to a lot of chronic diseases, uh, everything up to dementia, cancer, diabetes, heart disease, obesity. Um, so it knocks down your immune system when you're not sleeping. I'm sure everybody's familiar with that, but <clears throat> we wanted to talk about, and this is something I struggle with too, that little kind of like, Oh, well, I got six hours. It's okay. Or oh, I got five. I'll get seven tomorrow. Like that kind of thing. Uh, we have learned in the course of our reading for this show is actually quite damaging. Uh, so, and it's, it's kind of shocking how damaging it is. Um, so I guess, uh, let's get into it. Did you guys sleep last night? I did not. <laughs> I slept <didn't laughs> well. No, I slept like five hours, which is not good. Oh, that's good know? enough, right? Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> I just like solid eight and a half hours. Yeah. Oh, very good. I got nine. <laughs> I, nice. I probably got around 10. It was wow. awesome. I'm pretty so jealous leading, right now. I got about the pack. six, six and a half, maybe. Right on. Not because I didn't try. <laughs> <laughs> no, I probably got about nine. I'm exaggerating a little bit. <laughs> but even well, without so- all of the bad things like the cancer and the lowered immunity and the Alzheimer's, even without knowing that, basically... Some people do. I know I do. When I don't get good sleep, it just feels terrible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It feels yeah. bad to be drowsy during the day. You want to be alert and get things done. Like I was very, very sleepy during the day yesterday and I fell asleep at my desk and it was <laughs> not comfortable <laughs> at all. So even if I don't think I'm going to get the old timer's disease, just being sleepy during the day is enough to make me want to get really good sleep. Yeah. Yeah. It is annoying. Yeah. When you're drowsy. And yeah. you can't really do much about it. Yeah. And especially, and I don't know how many. not drowsy. It seems yeah. like, you know, there's like, if you, if you don't get enough sleep, it's like, you don't, I don't exactly know how to describe it. Like you might feel okay. Like you, you don't feel like you're actually tired, but it's just foggy. like things. Yeah. There's fogginess, but there's also just like, you're not performing things that you normally do um, up to the same standard. Um, it's, it's like, you know, even I, I sometimes even will find like conversations awkward and like other things, like things I've done a million times. I'm like dropping stuff all over the place. Like it, it's, it's weird. Yeah. It's I totally do weird. notice that I drop stuff and I forget stuff. Yeah. yeah. Like I have to go back yeah. in the house because I forgot something on my way somewhere. Yeah. And some reason it hits your, your emotions can become really erratic. Like if you oh, for sure. normally can deal with stressful situations with not quality sleep which i'm sure yeah. we'll discuss but you can just be like an emotional basket case mm-hmm. shut up erica what are you trying to say 
like, well, I'm okay because I got nine hours, so I'm happy. Yeah. <laughs> no, that totally yeah. happens. I, I know my uh, my legs get wobbly if I'm tired, and I'll like oh. step out of the truck and like start to roll my ankle or something, and be like, ah, it's <laughs> like I lose motor function, you know, uh, dexterity in my legs for some reason when I'm mm-hmm. tired. Yeah. Well, and I think it's important to mention quality of sleep too. Because right? no. maybe you get eight hours, but you're waking up every hour or it's disrupted. And so mm. you don't get that deep sleep, which seems to be what prevents all the diseases that Tiffany mentioned. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. not having to get up in the middle of the night to pee is a real bonus. <laughs> <laughs> I have a friend who's like that, actually, who has to, who, who every night will wake up at some point to pee. Some people wake up multiple times during the night to pee. Yeah. Well, I think some yeah. of that could oh. be because of, uh, like, prostate issues for guys. Yeah. But uh, I think this is a young guy, so I don't think it's that. Yeah, I was going to say, um, waking up to pee is technically not true. Uh, well, I guess in a small minority of cases, it may actually be to pee. Mm-hmm. But generally, um, it's not the um, the sensation of needing to urinate that wakes you up. I that, know where you're going. If, you, if you're if you're sleeping properly, if you are in a, in deep sleep, then um, then that sensation, the the that part of the the nervous system, that message does not actually um, get 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 sent. Let's say it's hmm. meant to shut off. Mm-hmm. Um, but what typically happens is someone will wake up due to either a spike in cortisol. Or there's something else that wakes them up, whatever it is, whether it's like body temperature dysregulation or something like that. And then when they wake up, they become acutely aware of the sensation of having a full full bladder. They go to the toilet and then they attribute um, waking up. The reason that they woke up was because they needed to pee. But actually, the reason that they woke up made them aware that they needed to pee and then they went to go to pee. I know and I've been able to tell the difference. Like very, very rarely, much more so than, well, when I was younger, like a kid, I would have to get up to pee. Like I would be dreaming that I had to pee or that I was peeing. And if I didn't <laughs> stop myself and actually wake yeah. up to pee, I would pee. Yeah, I had and that one as a kid. Occasionally as an adult, I'll feel that need. But mostly it's I just wake up for some other reason. And then I say, hey, I might as well pee. <laughs> <laughs> do, you, do you guys ever do the uh, the hand in a warm bowl of water trick on somebody? No. It works. Is that a myth or is it true? No. It, I mean, it doesn't work all the time, but it works. I remember from high school, but I haven't done it in many years. <laughs> Don't try it at home. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, they, uh, so our show today was, I should say, uh, largely inspired by this guy, Matthew Walker. Uh, who has a PhD in neurophysiology from uh, what is it? Medical Research Council in London. Um, and he's a professor at Harvard now, Harvard Medical School. So he has a website. Berkeley. Didn't he work at Berkeley? Oh, subsequent. He was a professor at Harvard. Yeah, now he's a, at uh, at Berkeley, right? Well, he his website is sleepdiplomat.com. And as you would imagine, he is a sleep diplomat. So he goes around telling people why they should sleep and why it's important and stuff like that. But he had a lot of really interesting things to say and uh, a lot of stuff about like athletics 
you know, um, people who need physical performance and how sleep, how important sleep is to them, but also just to everybody. I mean, because, you know, daily life is physical performance, even if you're not uh, exerting yourself. So you need your mind to be clear and not dropping things, all that kind of stuff. But Mm -hmm. one of the things that got me that he talks about is the consistency of the timing. So it's not like I can go to bed at two and get up at 10 and then go to bed at 10 and get up at six. Um, that inconsistent schedule is just as bad as having gotten too little sleep. And so mm-hmm. I thought that was really interesting too, and have been trying to do a regular schedule, albeit I'm only getting maybe three or four days out of the week where I keep it consistent. But mm. um, yeah, and he makes a point to say that you can't bank sleep, right? Right. That was very like interesting. A, yeah. It's not like it's not you credit. Can sleep 10 hours one night and two the next, and it will equal out. That right. Once you've missed it. You've missed it. Mm. Yeah. 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 So I yeah. I recently read his book. Um, it's called Why We Sleep, and it's uh it's currently a bestseller. It's right up there with a couple others, um, in all of the different charts and stuff. And it's I've got to say it was an absolutely um, amazing book to read. Uh, it's jam packed full of information, so it probably needs like a second or third read to really understand everything that he was saying but the implications of it um are quite staggering i think and i thought that i kind of already knew a little bit about sleep but it turns out i didn't really know anything about sleep until i read this book Mm. (laughs) and this guy is like a a, he knows a lot about sleep let's just say (laughs) (laughs) yeah well some of the statistics around it yeah, let's go to that. Maybe yeah. that'll give us some more context. Well, this one, maybe we'll start with this one. He's talking about, well, he starts off talking about uh, stages of sleep. What we've learned over the past sort of 30 or 40 years is all stages of sleep are important. Mm. You know, when you think about sleep as a state, it makes no sense. You know, firstly, you're vulnerable to predation. You're not finding food. You're not finding a mate. You're not reproducing. You're not caring for your young. On any one of those grounds, sleep should have been strongly selected against. As a collective, I mean, it's, it's almost idiotic. If sleep does not serve an absolutely vital function, it is the biggest mistake that the evolutionary process ever made. Mm. And that counts for all of the stages of sleep too. Again, Mother Nature wouldn't waste time putting you into a state that wasn't necessary. And what we've discovered is that all of those different stages of sleep that we spoke about all have unique and separate functions. So you can't shortchange any one of them. You Mm. you don't need to bias towards one and try and sort of, you know, placate the other. You know, evolution has, has taken a long time to get the blueprint accurately correct for each physiological individual. I wouldn't play around with it and think right. that you're smarter than that process. Right. I, I When I read it, I felt like it was a justification for smoking a lot of pot. Like, I, man, you're just getting deeper sleep, man. You don't need that REM sleep. You're passing it up, man. You just go right into the deep, heavy, necessary sleep. Au contraire. Au contraire, <laughs> potheads. Um, so what is happening to the body during REM sleep that's so critical, that one particular aspect of sleep? So firstly in the body the your cardiovascular system seems to do something quite strange it goes through periods of dramatic acceleration and then dramatic deceleration during rem sleep yeah during rem sleep quite unpredictable too Mm. 
We also know that during REM sleep, your brain paralyzes your body so that your mind can dream safely. So, wow. So, I mean, and that makes a lot of you know sense if you're thinking that you're you know this world champion mixed martial arts person, and it's in the middle of the night. You're not. It's dark. You can't see. You're not perceiving your outside world. You're going to get popped out of the gene pool very quickly if you start acting out that experience. So there is a barrier in place that Mother Nature locks you down in incarceration, muscle incarceration. That's crazy that you say that because when I was fighting when I was young, I would wake up throwing kicks. I would kick in the middle of the night. I would do it all the time. I'd be sleeping and I just I, I would move and throw a kick in the middle of the night. Yeah. And I remember it waking me up like, what the fuck is wrong with me? And then I try to go back to sleep again. But I was obviously dreaming about competing. Do you actually remember this? So when you woke up, did you remember dreaming at that point? Or did you just have no recollection of anything going on at that point? I, I believe I had a recollection. It's been a long time, but I believe I had a recollection. Um, like I would be like in bed with my girlfriend and I'd wake her up too, you know, because I just jolt. Like right. I wouldn't throw a full kick, but my body would move like I was going to, you know, like I would turn my hips and my leg would extend. It was my body was it was I I've, I attributed to the, the idea that it's so extreme, like the activity of fighting is so extreme that my my brain had kind of like hypercharged itself to compete at this very high level, you know, and that this was like so unusual that it was it was almost at red alert all the time and maybe even trying to work out patterns yep. while I was sleeping. That's yeah. exactly the evidence that we have now. Ah. So for things like motor skills or even rats running around a maze where they will learn specific sort of, you know, um, navigational pathways and even skilled motor movements. What you can do is you can place these electrodes into centers of the of the brain. We, we work in uh, my sleep, sleep center works on humans, but other people have done these studies in rats and you implant electrodes and you measure the brain cells firing as the rat is running around the maze. And let's say that you can sort of play little tones for each brain cell. So they're running around the maze and, and you can listen to the brain cells learning the signature of that maze. So it goes, what was amazing is that when you let those rats sleep, but you keep listening to the brain, what you hear is, as if the brain is actually, and in fact it is, it's replaying the exact same sequence, the memory sequence that it was learning whilst it was awake. It's wow. replaying, but at a speed that is 20 times faster. Whoa. So, you know, now we start to get into this inception world, and I don't mean to because the scientific data, it really, we're not sort of in that territory. But, you know, that notion of time compression and time dilation that Christopher Nolan played so well with in mm. that movie, we can see that at the level of brain cell firing in rats as they're learning these mazes. And it comes back to what you're saying, which is that the better that they rehearse those skilled memories, when you wake them up and test them the next day, that predicts how much better they are in terms of their performance. So it's not just that you learn, you go to sleep, and you replay and you hit the save button on these new memories. You actually sculpt out those memories and you improve them. And we've done studies with motor skill learning, critical for athletic performance. And practice does not make perfect, 
practice with a night of sleep is what makes perfect because you come back the next day and you're 20 to 30 percent better in terms of your skilled performance than where you were at the end of your practice session the day before wow wow i mean sleep is the greatest legal performance enhancing drug that most people are probably neglecting in sport Wow. And not just for your physical performance, but actually skill learning. That's right. Skill learning, memory, and then also, you know, downstairs in the body, all of the recuperative benefits. Um, and you can flip the coin, by the way. If you're getting six hours of sleep or less, your time to physical exhaustion drops by up to 30%. So you could spend all of your time training for a 10-round fight perfect condition but then i put you on six hours of sleep the night before you're now going to be physically exhausted by round seven rather than round 10 wow but well and that's a really hard thing for fighters because they have a very difficult time sleeping the night before a big fight yeah it's very very difficult because anxiety and yep. and i would imagine it's got to be I mean, it's probably going to take a, t a huge toll. I mean, it's probably be a huge benefit if they can somehow or another bypass all that and just relax and learn how to relax and learn how to actually sleep. I mean, it's. I think, you know, it's one of – we're constantly trying to hack the physiological system, especially in elite sports these days because, you know, small fractions of a percent of gain can make a huge difference. Well, that sounds like 30 percent. That's a monster. Huge, yeah. I mean, your time to you – know, sort of not just physical exhaustion, but, you know, the lactic acid builds up quicker the less and less that you sleep. Your ability of the lungs to actually expire carbon dioxide and inhale oxygen decreases the less sleep that you Man, have. that makes so much sense. Because well, when I was doing, I was doing Fear Factor and I was doing stand-up comedy and then I was also doing another television show and I was doing jujitsu. I was, ne I never got eight hours sleep. I mostly got four. Usually got four. And my cardio always sucked. Yeah. It was always terrible. And I'd be like, why does my cardio suck? I work out so much. Like, that was probably what it was. Yeah. It's a huge part of that. Wow. Equation. Now, how many hours of sleep should you get? Somewhere between... Excuse me, somewhere between seven to nine hours. Um, mm. Once you get below seven hours of sleep, we can measure objective impairments in your brain and your body. I can show that in the last two days. And I can show it because I basically did the same workout two days in a row. Um, the day before, <clears throat> I had flown back from Boston, very tired. Um, hung out with my kids all day, um, went to get some sleep, but then I had to do some stuff at like two o'clock in the morning. And uh, I just never really got good sleep. And then my youngest daughter got up at 5. She was crying. And then uh, I eventually my alarm went off at 8. So my my sleep was like 3 or 4 hours. It was all screwy. And the night before it was even less because I had flown and I had to get up early for the flight. And I tried to sleep on the plane. And I went running and I felt like dog shit. Yeah. And then during the day I felt like dog shit. I just didn't have – like as I was running, I just didn't have any extra gear. I was like, ugh. I did it. I pushed through it, but then it was over. I was like, oh, well, last night, last night I slept seven and a half hours. Woke up today, lifted weights, ran, ran, felt great, feel great now. Like two days in difference. I mean, that's the difference. The difference is one day I got real sleep. One day I didn't. I did the exact same thing. Even more today. I did. I lifted weights today as well. And I just feel great. So I could see I could see it physiologically in the the difference in my performance in 24 hours. Yeah, and that's noticeable. I mean, we see that too. You know, your um, your peak muscle strength, 
your physical vertical jump height and your peak running speed, all of those things correlate with sleep. The less that you have, the worse those outcomes are. Probably one of the most surprising factors, though, was injury risk when they've looked at athletes across a season and they've just plotted, you know, how frequently will they get injured? And then they surveyed them, you know, how much sleep were you getting? And they bucketed them into sort of people who are getting nine hours, seven hours, six, five, four. And it's a perfect linear relationship. The less sleep that you have, higher your injury risk. So people getting nine hours versus five hours, there was almost a 60% increase in probability of injury risk during a season. Do you attribute that to exhaustion or do you attribute that to a lack of recovery from the previous night's workout? Is it a combination of those things? Is it exhaustion causing you to misstep perhaps and like twist an ankle or turn a knee? Yeah, it's all of those things. All those things. I mean, if you, even if you look at microbalance, if you look at sort of these stability muscles versus, you know, major muscles, those stability muscles also fail when mm. you're not getting sufficient sleep. And I think we often underestimate how critical they are in sport performance, right. particularly in terms of combating and placating injury risk too. So if you just get someone on a stability ball, you know, and sort of just dose them down with sleep eight hours five hours you know three hours and just notice how those stability muscles help you balance just the basic act of balance that deteriorates dramatically no wonder you're getting more injury risk totally makes sense now as a neuroscientist so yeah <clears throat> pretty fascinating there I, that's that's my thing is those stability muscles just go yeah. away you're just like nope yeah well, it's kind of like what we're talking about when you're like, you know, become clumsy, start dropping stuff, like mm -hmm. falling over, whatever the case may be. It's like mm -hmm. it, it, it's like you might actually feel okay, but it's it's it, it's more in the in the physiology that you're actually yeah. missing that sleep. Yeah. Yeah. What I say? I mean, it's really interesting what he said right at the beginning about how obviously we have sleep for a reason, but it, it's the most evolutionary, illogical thing. If you just take it at face value. So, yeah. but I think, you know, it's common knowledge. Everybody goes, yeah, well, if you sleep more, you feel better, you know, mm -hmm. or if you have, if you're well rested, then you do better in all aspects. But I think people don't really delve into why, or on the other hand, the detriments from not getting that sleep. And that was mm -hmm. what, like one of the things he said in that, in that interview uh, was, I think it was going into the summer when we spring forward, the time change, there's a 20 in, in the countries that change time, there's a 25% increase in heart attacks. Yeah. And then, and then when we fall back, there's a 25% decrease. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 And that's only so that extra, hour. that extra yeah. hour of sleep decreases the rate of the heart attack, but then the one hour less of sleep increases yeah. it. And that's just yeah. like amazing. It is amazing. Yeah. And yet we still... And I think it. about... Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. I think about all the times, oh my God, driving. I mean, I've driven 16 hours to the point where I was barely awake when I got to my destination. It's so dangerous and stupid. Mm -hmm. I mean, I feel like I wouldn't do that now, but man. And just thinking about other times where, you know, I've stayed up for three days before oh, in certain cases. Oh. Yeah. Did you so, Well... I did actually once... <laughs> Uh, yeah, I think, you know, I, I'm trying to think now, like, of course, not to get too paranoid, but what lasting damage have I done to myself with that? Did I, did I get rid of a layer of my well, immune system or something? That's actually interesting because there was a guy, uh, a DJ, 
mm-hmm. um, in like the 50s or the 60s who like, you know, as a promotional thing, stayed up for eight days straight and stayed on the air the whole time. And he was like, you know, playing records and doing his DJ thing. But uh, and he started to go like fully insane. Like, you know, when he said he was going to do it, apparently he was uh, um, it was recommended by like, you know, scientists, doctors that he not do it. But he yeah. said, no, 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 I'm going to do it. And they're like, well, if you're going to do it, can we study you? Because, you know, that's a good opportunity. So they sure. did. And they were saying, like, I watched a, a video where they were talking to some of the, the scientists who were there with him. And um, they said he was clearly psychotic. Like, after a certain amount of time, he was, like, clearly psychotic. He was hallucinating, seeing spiders in his shoes, super paranoid. Thought that um, people coming in, like, a doctor who came in to kind of check on him, he thought that he was, like, a Secret Service guy. (laughs) And he thought people were trying to poison his food. But anyway, the point being that after the fact, he he, he slept for 24 hours straight. Then he woke (laughs) up, and he's like, yeah, I'm fine, you know, I'm I'm recovered, everything's cool. But his wife said that he was never the same. And what? they actually ended up getting divorced. Like it, it apparently caused like permanent personality changes of some kind. Wow. Like the guy was not the same person afterwards. Wow. And was not, apparently because he was a very like happy-go-lucky kind of jokey guy. And after that, he was not. Oh. And I think he well, set I mean, the world record, right? Wasn't that what he was working for? He did at the time, too? but apparently the world, world record now is 11 days. Oh, oh. my gosh. Wow. By a meth head from what's, Colorado. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, Jonathan, what's interesting, uh, you said about driving. Um, in Matthew Walker's book, he talks about how when someone has been up for 20 hours, um, their brain is functioning at a similar level um, to someone who is way over the limit in terms of al- alcohol, mm. drinking <laughs> alcohol. So... Basically, when you're drink, when you're driving and you've been up for 20 hours, you're technically over the limit. Um, and the I can't remember the statistic, but the likelihood of, of having a crash is like is sky high mm-hmm. when right. you when you're sleep deprived. Sure. He also said that comparing drunk driving with sleep deficit driving was if you're drunk, you're you have. A, a little bit of motor skills to actually put on the brake, whereas you're drowsy driving, you don't do anything. <laughs> you yeah. just crash. Yeah, you're basically yeah. got like a three-ton He said it was. Call. Yeah, he Why? said it was the difference between having a slow reaction time versus having no reaction time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. So and it's the, more, the it's more is, dangerous. Yeah, well, when you go so long without sleep, I can't remember the exact amount of hours but say 20 hours or something, your body will naturally force these things called micro-sleeps. I think that's what they called them. And mm-hmm. it's basically like uh, temporary blips, um, mm. say every couple minutes, where you just go into into a daze. You just sleep. And maybe it's mm-hmm. for 30 seconds or it could be for two minutes or something, but your body will try and force you to, to try and top up on some of that sleep. And... Um, yeah, apparently that's one of the main causes of, of of a lot of the car accidents, which are due to sleep deprivation, is because people actually fall asleep at the wheel sure. without necessarily even feeling tired. Their body just goes into this micro-sleep. Well, is that what you yeah. would refer to as uh, road hypnosis, when you kind of dissociate and realize you haven't actually looked at the road in like a minute, you know, or... I don't know if that happens well, to you guys. I've done that, but it wasn't because I was sleepy. It's just because I was off in La La Land. 
Yeah. Yeah. I think the hypnotic pattern of like the, the white lines on the road and stuff mm-hmm. can do that. Especially mm-hmm. I had it happen to me once when it was foggy outside. So all that was really in my vision was this white lines going by. And I wasn't particularly tired, but I, I just like was really I could feel myself getting kind of pulled into this sort of weird hypnotic state. And all of a sudden, I, I just kind of snapped out. And it was like, whoa, wait a minute. I've got to roll down the windows, turn up the radio. Like, this yeah. is bad. Yeah. Well, good thing we'll have self-driving cars in the future. So we'll never have yeah. another accident again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Because they don't yeah. seem to have any accidents. No. <laughs> Not yet, anyway. Yeah, um, it's interesting uh, what Elliot was saying about the, uh, the micro-sleeps. Because apparently, when you're really sleep-deprived, you know, people will start to have like hallucinations. Mm-hmm. And apparently the reason for that is that your brought your brain is basically going into the REM state. Um, mm. even though you're not asleep. It's yeah. kind of like REM is so important that even if you are forcing yourself to stay awake, it's like, no, you're still gonna go into this REM state because it's so necessary. So that's why mm. people like so people are essentially dreaming while they are conscious. Mm-hmm. So that's wow. that's why you get these kind of uh these weird hallucinatory experiences. Well, he said the same thing about alcoholics because alcohol blocks REM sleep. And then once they get off the alcohol and they're going through delirium tremens, uh, they'll start dreaming while they're awake. And that's what delirium is, which is really strange. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I would ever want to be in that state. It's almost akin to uh, schizophrenia. eh? Yeah. Mm. I had a friend who I say had because I haven't seen her for many years, but uh, obviously nameless, uh, schizophrenic, and she would kind of relate stories about it. And she said she hallucinated one time a uh, like a 500 foot tall Jesus that was standing on the horizon. Oh, and so I was, I was I was grilling her about it, like, okay, is this you thought it was there or what? She's like, no, it was there. I saw it like it was real. Mm-hmm. And I was like, that's that's really wild that your brain can even do that. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, when you're in REM sleep, the prefrontal cortex, which is the decision-making executive part of your brain, gets shut down. So that's why a lot of weird stuff happens in dreams and you just accept it as true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So- yeah the, speaking of the micro-sleeps thing, it uh, <clears throat> made me think of There's a story. I can't remember her name, but this young woman who's an ultra-marathon runner. And she's like blowing a lot of people out of the water in these like 150 mile races, really, really crazy stuff. Like, uh, but she'll sleep, you know, very occasionally during the run. They're running for like two days, you know, so they, they kind of either camp or stop and eat and then keep going. And at one point, um, she was way ahead of everybody and her trainer, you know, was with her cause they have to have somebody pace them. Mm-hmm. And she was like, I got to, I got to sleep. I got to sleep. So she said, wake me up in one minute. And I was like, uh, okay. So she laid down on the trail, literally passed out for 60 seconds. He woke her up and she got up and then kept going and won the race. Mm-hmm. So uh, what makes me curious about that is like, there's a kind of a placebo effect. It seems like, because Matthew Walker talks about how our gate, our own gauge is not accurate. So you might feel fine. So like I got five hours last night. I essentially feel fine. I might, if I really like looked inward, I might notice I'm a little bit slow, but I, I think I feel fine. But according to him, I'm lying to myself, right? Uh, and I wonder about that in cases of like this woman who's the runner, like how much mind over matter is it that she could get up and run like 15 more miles after that, after being exhausted to the point of passing out? 
Or how she could sleep for one minute. Like for one minute, yeah. Unrealistic. <laughs> well, it was such a level think, of exhaustion, you know. I think the answer to that is is stress almost. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. They're pretty amazing <laughs> things. That, that there is the kind of a thing about doing like power naps though. Mm-hmm. Like sometimes when you know you're you're staying up a long time or something like that, and you just you, you you're just so tired, and you just lay down for like twenty minutes, and you wake up, and you're like, actually, I feel pretty good now. I mean, maybe it, it is some kind of placebo, or yeah, it kind of it takes the edge off, or like it's like it's like a second wind or something like that. Mm-hmm. It's like there's just that 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 short um, twenty minute nap, just kind of uh, yeah, you feel kind of good afterwards. You, have you ever had to make it worse though? Because that happens to me sometimes too. Like sometimes if power go, naps are great, and then yeah, if I go yeah. longer than twenty minutes, like a lot of times, what would happen to me? Like I don't know, I don't nap at this point in my life, but I did at one time, and I found that if I like laid down and kind of slept for twenty minutes, and then I got up, I was totally cool. If I did longer than that, and it's kind of like because I would always wake up after twenty minutes, and I would be like, no, I'm just going to keep on laying here. And if yeah. I did that. And I ended up sleeping for like an hour or something. I would feel terrible once I got <laughs> like super groggy, like having to fight my way out of sleep to be able to get right. up. Yeah. yeah. I wonder if it's because you drill. Ready to go to bed again. <laughs> yeah. Well, I wonder if it's because that extra forty minutes you drill down deeper, right, into the yeah. layers of sleep, so it's harder yeah. to get out. I think that is. Yeah. Right. yeah. So you have cycles. Um, you don't just have like you don't just go to sleep and then you're asleep. It, like what is actually going on in the brain and the rest of the body is various cycles of what is called REM sleep and non-REM sleep, and they both feature completely different sort of brain brain activity, different brain waves, um, and different sort of they play different physiological functions. But uh, I would imagine what you're talking about, Doug, is 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 something to do with that in that you can enter like a short wave period a cycle um generally i i believe the cycle of rem and nrem together if i remember correctly is about three hours uh, i'm not sure about just the one section of it maybe if you just had uh, a short cycle of, of rem sleep it may just be 20 minutes or something mm-hmm. and i think it varies at different times um but yeah, I think that's generally why people, um, like, if you go much longer than that short cycle, you get into that deeper cycle. You, maybe you get into the deep non-REM sleep, um, and, mm. and then getting out of that is, is kind of problematic. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's exactly what was going on. And one thing that was interesting that was in one of the articles we read was that dreams occur during non REM sleep also. Yeah. But, but apparently in the article they said, yeah, they're not that great. <laughs> Unemotional <laughs> and kind of boring and hard to remember. And REM dreams pack more of a punch, apparently. Yeah. So those are the kind where you wake up and you're like, was I just jogging in a dream? <laughs> like weird. <laughs> yeah. Or I was like, did I just dream I was going to work? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder. Not a waste of time. I'd be curious, Walker didn't talk about this specifically because he doesn't really seem to talk about dreams. Per, he does talk about them, but not he's not like a dream scientist, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, it makes me curious about uh, nightmares and like where do nightmares happen? 
you know, is it in that deeper level? Cause usually if I have a nightmare, it's super vivid. Mm-hmm. Like, but I, how would I know if I don't remember the ones that I don't remember? So I'm betting you know. nightmares would be more REM sleep. Yeah. yeah Cause they're so like, kind of hallucinatory. The other ones are like so mundane and just kind of boring that I think that, you know, the, the it's when you get into all that, like really deep, um, you know, symbolic kind of stuff where you can actually interpret them and stuff like those are all like REM sleep. Yeah. So, nightmares. Yeah. I typically tend to remember those. Mm. At yeah. least for longer than I remember other non-nightmare dreams. Well, well one thing that kind of relates to that. REM sleep. One thing kind of relates to that is the whole sleep paralysis thing. Mm-hmm. And I think, like, in that clip we just played, Walker kind of gave a bit of a an explanation for that. Like, in, I mean, he didn't specifically address it, but just the fact that there is a process in the body that kind of paralyzes the muscles during sleep. So that you don't start acting out these crazy dreams and stuff. And actually, one thing that I did notice, I used to suffer from sleep paralysis quite a bit. I don't really anymore, or at least not often. And uh, one thing that I noticed is that if I was just taking a nap, I would have dreams. And that is when I would often have those sleep paralysis moments. So it's kind of like I was in REM sleep, but then at the same time, I was kind of coming out of it and was sort of semi-conscious or aware of where I was, that I was like laying in my bed and what time it was, what day it was and all that kind of stuff, but I couldn't move. Mm-hmm. So I think that kind of offers an explanation for that phenomenon, which is really scary and terrible. Yeah. I've never had that where I was like conscious of being paralyzed. I've always been curious. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know it sounds, it sounds terrifying. I have a friend who, who gets it occasionally. Um, but yeah, I've never experienced that. I get what they call the uh, exploding head syndrome. <laughs> Stupid name. It's a stupid name. But, uh, yeah, I don't get it all the time. Maybe, like, if I had to guess, say, 10 times a year. Like, maybe once a month with, you know, a skipping one here and there. But, um, basically, like, as I'm falling asleep, I'll see a flash of light and actually hear a sound that goes, like a shock. Mm. And it's, it's like somebody's stuck an electrode in my brain and I wake up for a second, you know, and then I go back to sleep and that it happens every once in a while. But it got so weird that I looked it up and I guess they call that exploding head syndrome, but there's no explanation for it. Um, huh. so I don't know. Hmm. I'm not I'm sure. Some neuro- short circuit in the brain or something like that. Yeah. Some kind of neurological thing. Or it's that frontal cortex just turning off. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you all ever get that experience where you feel like you're falling? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And you kind of jolt, your body jolts? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I get that if I'm sitting up, if I'm sleeping in like a chair, like mm-hmm. in a car or on a plane, then I'll get that. Mm-hmm. So do I we actually want used to... to get a recurring one. Sorry. Do you want to speculate as to why we need to dream? Yeah. Because it doesn't yeah. seem like it's something that has to happen, but it happens with everyone. Well, the... There's the general consensus that you're like processing things, right? That you're processing any kind of psychological issues from throughout the day or in your life. Um, of course, I think people, you know, people talk about premonition dreams too. I've had a couple that were mm-hmm. unmistakable. Like I dreamt it and it happened as I dreamt mm. it. That happened to me twice, but I can't claim anything for it. You know, <laughs> it's just weird. Uh, but I, I know it happens because it happened to me, but I've also heard a lot of stories of people having the same thing happen. So I think there's some kind of like information bleed through if you want to get weird about it, yeah. you know. I often have thought of that. I mean, this is totally speculative, but I've, I've kind of thought that maybe it's kind of a time when the 
the brain or whatever you kind of like connect to the information field and it's like some kind of work going on there some kind of mm-hmm. stuff that you're working out that's really vague but nonetheless yeah, well, it was like kind of what i thought <clears throat> well all the quantum guys say that time is kind of fluid right that it's not really when you really drill down into it it's not such a linear thing um even like on the on the quantum physics level, I guess I, this is out of my wheelhouse. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's, what I'm saying is it's not entirely such a um, like a foo foo idea that you know information from the recent past or the recent future or whatever would kind of leak through into your dreams. Obviously, that sounds really foo foo to a lot of people, I'm sure. But mm-hmm. um, I don't know. I've always thought it was just that your brain, like you have all this input input throughout the day. And then you have to process it somehow. So your brain is just kind of like dumping data, defragmenting while you're sleeping. And um, dream, dreaming is just a byproduct of all the electrical activity that's happening in your brain, perhaps? Well, it's one idea. Yeah. yeah. Well, But it is so specific. You know, I mean, there there are some dreams, not just, I'm not talking about premonition dreams, but just dreams. I mean, some of them are so specific. And, you know, I'm, everybody's had this kind of dream where it's like, you wake up and you're like, I was just somewhere else. That was real, you know, smells, sounds, touch, everything. Yeah. So it's pretty bizarre. Yeah. uh, We have a caller. Oh, cool. To uh, call in. Nice. Hey, this is Harrison. Hey. Hey, Harrison. Hey. 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 I just wanted, I wanted to say a couple things on this dreaming conversation and uh, maybe why, why we dream, even though it seems we don't need to dream. Now, this is kind of speculative as well, but it uh, I first read about this idea in a book called The Irreducible Mind. It was a collection, a really big book, collection of kind of all the latest research to show that, um, you know, consciousness can't be reduced to physical processes, basically. And they get into all kinds of stuff from um, like psychoneuroimmunology or whatever it's called to more weird things like uh, hypnosis and then more parapsychological things. But anyways, in the I think it was in the introduction of this book that they're going through some theories of consciousness, and there are some philosophers and um, kind of psychologists and th- basically theorists of consciousness um, who say that or who speculate that the nature of consciousness is actually oneric in nature, oneric, and that basically means dreamlike. Mm-hmm. So that consciousness, the nature of consciousness, is to dream, and when we're awake and in the physical world and our consciousness is like linked with our physical bodies, our, we like, there is as much a projection of consciousness onto the, onto the, what we call the physical reality as there is the physical reality influencing our consciousness. So we basically Mm -hmm. project our um, like awareness of the things around us onto that environment. And um, that kind of matches up with the things that are out there to be perceived. So, um, so when you dream, it's almost like you're, or when you're asleep, you're taking away the external world onto which we project our consciousness mm-hmm. or our awareness of just things. And that ties into altered states of consciousness as well. Um, because what happens in altered states of consciousness, and these can be like ecstatic experiences, what, what are typically called religious experiences, is that the parts of your ba- brain that are Well, you have various parts of your brain receiving information um, about the world and about your body, and then other parts that are sending signals to, to, you know, other parts of the brain. So it's all interconnected. But in ecstatic experiences, 
the parts of your brain that are receiving like the the impulses from your body for instance those get kind of turned off so mm-hmm. you're basically conscious but you lose the the connection with your body like so you're not perceiving your body anymore and that leads to the to the perception that you that you're you've kind of you don't have a body anymore or you're you're this expansive bodiless thing so you still have awareness but you've you've lost any connection with your body mm. so t- taking this back to dreams um the idea might be that w- that something similar has happened like as in a, a religious a religious experience where you no longer have the input from the physical world from your own body and that leaves your consciousness to be um, freed from that kind of physical constraint or that physical channeling of your consciousness to, to basically revert your consciousness to a more primitive form or a more basic form so you're now you're you're your consciousness is no longer limited by the the physical world that we experience when we're awake. So um, primitive might not be the best word. It's like more basic. Mm-hmm. So dreaming mm-hmm. is pro- is like it's the hypothesis is that dreaming is a more basic level of consciousness that it's kind of like the default mode. And mm-hmm. and so that might even tie in with um, the ex- uh, like near death experiences and pre-birth experiences that you that you hear about from children who remember past lives and from um, people who um, will end of life experiences so these would be like the 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 almost religious or or strange experiences that people who are dying have mm-hmm. like where it's almost like they enter a, a dream world while they're still awake and while they're dying and, the, and they'll report all these um, like three types of experiences they report similar phenomena so it's almost like their brain shifts out of the physical world and into um this other world where consciousness is not as limited by physical reality so i just wanted to share that as an as so, hypothesis wow. yeah there's That's a wild. need for the consciousness to be able to uh go about unfettered from the physical mm. body. Yeah, maybe. And without that need being satisfied, there will be deleterious effects. Because mm-hmm. a lot of these, the people that have these experiences, not just near-death experiences, but even um, just, I guess you could say, more routine, basic religious experiences, mm. <clears throat> is that they, um, especially in the near-death experience, when the when you have people who have physically died and leave their bodies, they, they, they describe it as if, it's just such a relief. It's like they never realized how much work it was <clears throat> to be in the body, mm-hmm. and they actually don't want to come back because their 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 cognition is clearer. They're they're more aware. They they don't have pain. Um, it's just less constricted, and they they say it's like feeling lighter. It's like feeling like one one <clears throat> woman who had a a near death experience during a uh, like a really intense operation where they. The doctors actually basically killed her in order to try to save her life by t- by removing this aneurysm. She said it was like it, she was just a, an average weight um, woman, but she said it felt like she it felt like she had been 500 pounds and then had like lost 400 pounds in mm. an instant when she left the body. Like she just felt lighter and freer. And so, wow. so yeah, maybe there is this very um, um, what's the word? it's taxing to be in the body and we don't realize it and then sleep you know can can take the load off of our consciousness that it that it experiences by just being 
in the body mm-hmm. during the day. Well, that's that's pretty much word for word what uh, what Walker says. So, I mean, totally second witnesses that because uh, he talks about waking life causes brain damage. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that we we have to sleep in order to repair that. But as we are awake, we are deteriorating. And so it's it's interesting to almost kind of tie it into your life cycle. It's like, I mean, you couldn't, I'm, I'm thinking of it in terms of like you die because you are gradually more and more brain damaged over time <laughs> as you're staying awake for more and more days. Um, but you wouldn't necessarily live forever if you slept forever because then your muscles would atrophy and you would die from inactivity. So we need both of these things, mm-hmm. um, which is kind of weird, right? doesn't quite seem like we're supposed to be here. <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> it is interesting, though, that the REM state in particular, but sleep in general, I mean, it is clearly very necessary. Mm-hmm. So whatever is happening, and what you just shared, Harrison, was really fascinating, but it makes me wonder what about that experience is so vital and, and important. Because mm-hmm. like we were talking about before, if you don't actually give your body uh, the chance to sleep and, and experience that REM state, it will just enter it on its own, even while you're up and walking around. Mm-hmm. So clearly it is, it's vital, whatever it is. Yeah. Uh, I like that idea. I mean, it's almost like, you know, you need to uh, just take your clothes off and run around naked once in a while. <laughs> That's kind of what sleep is. Every day, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say I'd speculate on that just totally out of the blue, but, you know, making those connections in the brain without feeling the weight of physicality and what he's saying about how lack of sleep causes a deterioration in the brain and Alzheimer's. Mm-hmm. So it's it's maybe like a cleaning of the brain, too. Yeah. Making those yeah. connections or, I don't know. Not saying it the best way, but well, well, the brain there is, does clean itself at night through the yeah. It's an actual system. like a literal detox function, right? That mm-hmm. happens while you're sleeping. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you also uh, you undergo a process called autophagy or autophagy. It's basically, um, this is where all of the damaged uh, cellular components, whether it be mitochondria or protein or um, the fats that make up the membranes, um, your, your body basically tags them during a waking state and then in order to detoxify them, basically digest them and get rid of them, uh, you need to enter a state of autophagy. Uh, so this is one of the reasons why they proclaim, proclaim that fasting is is so beneficial because it induces this, this uh, sort of cleaning out function um, but it's important to note that it's melatonin, the hormone um, which is associated with sleep. Melatonin modulates this process. Um, and so you can go to sleep. Um, you can go to sleep and have low levels of melatonin and you are not necessarily going to um, clear out the debris as well as you would have Hmm. Uh, like the beta amyloid plaques uh, in in Alzheimer's, for instance, the way that they are cleared out is is autophagy. Yeah. So I wonder if uh, Alzheimer's is just a 
you know, some kind of clog in the clearing out system. Yeah, well, it was also um, tied to poor light, right? Uh, Elliot, you can probably correct me if I'm wrong about this, but I seem to remember that that part of the uh, the whole importance of light and getting natural light into your eyeballs was to uh, increase that detox capability uh, as well as melatonin. Uh, yeah. So, so, so almost like I wonder if Alzheimer's is maybe not directly, but partially induced by, you know, poor light for too many years. Well, Matthew Walker talks about this extensively in his book. He talks about um, the Edison light bulb and um, the work of Nikola Tesla and and basically how humans have created uh, artificial light, like this environment, which we've all sort of normalized now, but is, is really quite a, a recent um, development. And it's not uh, conducive to the way that the body uh, is is meant to work in many ways. So um, the exposure to artificial light at night time, it, it's been shown time and time again, uh, it, it does two things. It, it can basically, um, first of all, it can reduce the overall content of melatonin that you are going to produce. Yeah, so ideally you want a good load of melatonin. Melatonin is an antioxidant in the brain, but it also sort of coordinates many different functions related to the metabolism and detoxification and everything like that. So you want a good uh, quantity of melatonin. But the another problem with the artificial light is that it actually, um, it, it basically delays the onset of it. So you can it can delay it by up to three hours so ideally you should be producing melatonin in the early evening and then that is one of the things that will sort of promote um a deep rested sleep uh, you will go to sleep and then as it sort of gets to you know four five six a.m um there will be a steep decrease in melatonin and um, and then you would start the next day. And the problem is, is that with artificial light, when you delay the onset of melatonin, uh, say you delay it by three hours. So you go to bed at, say, 12 o'clock in the evening. Say you watch a movie or you look at your iPad uh, while you're in bed. You go to bed at 12 o'clock and you may not be producing melatonin until 3 a.m. So that's potentially six hours later than you ordinarily would have. And so one of the reasons why people go to bed so late and then they wake up in the morning and they feel really groggy is actually because of the melatonin that they've still got floating around in their system, which is which is like basically making them feel like that. Okay, so... <laughs> So the artificial light is a big problem, but it's it's not only the artificial light at night; it's also the lack of sunlight in the in the early morning. Uh, so typically, you know, you would naturally be exposed to really bright light as soon as the sun uh, rises, and this is a trigger for a cascade of different chemical reactions, uh, which basically trigger you know various hormones and stuff like that, and it's all really cool. <laughs> but it's good. It's good for your body. And if you, most of the time, people wake up and they might stay indoors all day and they never really get that 
input, that stimulus, to tell their body that it's awake. And so that can also affect the way that you produce melatonin and sleep uh, the subsequent night. I thought it was interesting about what he said about supplementing with melatonin and that it's really, unless you're traveling, it's really kind of just a placebo effect. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like if you travel you on different times. Oh, but not something to be taken as a supplement on a regular basis. Yeah. Well, he said there wasn't really an issue with taking it. He said if it's working, then by all means keep going. But he said that like you're, it, you're, that melatonin for for like older people, like people as they age, are producing less. So it, it has been found to be beneficial for for the aged. But um, but yeah, the average person just popping it all the time, it's more likely yeah, a placebo effect. I remember hearing that too. That that me- melatonin or yeah, melatonin taken orally uh, doesn't cross the blood brain barrier, kind of like GABA, or not very much of it crosses. Um, I have to look that up to confirm, though. So in his book, he he recommends that you should take melatonin when you um, change time zones, um, Mm. particularly if you're flying from Europe to the U.S. or something like that. Uh, And the time that you should take it is around the same time that it starts to get dark. Um, So even if you're not feeling tired, um, say if you uh, you gain you gain seven hours or something and so your body is used to say your home time is like 3 p.m whereas when you get off the flight it's 10 p.m say in los angeles or somewhere and so you would take melatonin at that time even though your body is not tired um to try and trick it to thinking that it's it's nighttime because where you are because you're adapting to the nighttime of your environment right Mm -hmm. I met a guy once who said that twice a year he flies from Holland to Los Angeles and that he's gotten used to that trip and that on the, if I remember correctly, on the way from Europe to the United States, he has to sleep and on the way back, he can't sleep. But Hmm. in, in terms of like, if he's crossing the time zones back to Europe, if he does sleep, he'll screw himself up for like a week or two after that. But if he doesn't sleep, then he's exhausted when he gets there and he'll pass out and then get back. So maybe falling trapped to that kind of like catch up idea, which we've learned is not true. But I thought it was interesting. Yeah. Well, let's uh, speaking of uh, Walker stuff, let's go to another clip and uh, we can discuss that when we get back. I think we have another one here. Yeah, I think this one they're talking about ways to get better sleep. Sweet time sleeping like say if you're a person who has insomnia you have a hard time getting getting to bed you have a hard time staying asleep when you wake up you can't go back to bed yeah are there are there strategies there are i mean i think for most people there are five things that you can do just out the gate to get better sleep regularity is probably the most important thing i can tell you go to bed at the same time wake up at the same time no matter whether it's the weekend weekday regularity is key we've spoken about light For example, when you, in the last hour before bed, try to stay away from screens, but also just switch off half the lights in the house. Mm. You'd be surprised at how soporific that is. It really starts to sort of make you feel a bit more drowsy. They've done some great studies where they would take people out, you know, into the Rockies, no electric light, no electricity whatsoever. 
And they started to go to bed two hours earlier than their acclaimed natural bedtime. Mm. It wasn't just because they didn't have anything necessarily to do. It was that their melatonin was rising, you know, two hours earlier. So keep it dark. The third is probably keep it cool. Your brain actually needs to drop its temperature by about two to three degrees Fahrenheit to initiate sleep. Mm. And that's the reason that you will always find it easier to fall asleep in a room that's too cold than too hot. I've seen people use cold pads. Yeah. Have you seen those? Or you sleep on these cold pads? What do you yeah. think of those? Yeah. I mean, the, the evidence is pretty good that cooling the body actually works. They've, um, you know, in the book, I write about uh, a series of studies where they had people in, it's almost like a wetsuit, but it has all of these veins running through it. And they could actually perfuse warm or cold water into any part of the body, hands, core of the body, feet. And so that you could exquisitely manipulate the temperature of any part of the body. And what they found is that they could effectively cool the body down and it instantaneously made people fall asleep faster and it gave them deeper, deep non-REM sleep, that sort of restorative sleep for the body. So, and you can even look at studies where people sleep semi-naked and that also seems to improve their sleep and they get a little bit more deep sleep too. So cold is better. The paradox here though is that you need to warm your feet and your hands to kind of charm the blood away from your core out to the surface and radiate that heat. Really? So So you should go to sleep with socks and gloves on? Yeah. Or better still have a hot bath. Um, evidence here too, um, that I discuss where people say, you know, I get out of a hot bath, I feel nice and toasty and relaxed. And that's why I fall asleep. It's the opposite. When you get into a bath, you get vasodilation, all you sort of get rosy cheeks, red skin, all of the blood rushes to the surface. You get out of the bath and you have this massive thermal dump of heat that just evacuates from the body. Your core body temperature plummets. And that's why you sleep better. So you can hack the system very easily. Wow. So your core body temperature plummets and that's what makes you sleep easier. Yeah. That sounds so counterintuitive. Yeah. But it makes sense. And it makes sense because that's how we were designed. If you look at hunter-gatherer tribes whose way of life has not changed for thousands of years and you ask how do they sleep – One of the things that seems to dictate their sleep is the rise and fall of temperature. You know, temperature is at its lowest in the nadir of the night, you know, three or four in the morning. And as that temperature, that climate temperature starts to drop, that's when they start to get drowsy, as if temperature is just sort of signaling to the brain, now it's time to sleep. So light as well as temperature are two key triggers to help you get better sleep. Um, If you look at those tribes, by the way, and when they go to sleep and they wake up, um, you know, they go to sleep probably at two hours after dusk, sort of eight to nine in the evening, wake up about half an hour, even an hour before dawn. It's the rise in temperature rather than light that triggers their awakening. Um, But there's a reason, you know, have you ever thought about what the term midnight actually means? (laughs) Middle of the night. Right. And that's what it should be for all of us. But in modernity, we've been dislocated from our natural rhythms. And now midnight has become the time when we think, I should check Facebook last time. You know, I should you know, send my last email. <laughs> yeah. that, that wasn't that 
is not how we were you know, designed to sleep. And in fact, we may also be designed to sleep biphasically too. If you look at those hunter-gatherers, they don't sleep one long bout of eight hours at night. Yeah, I've heard this recently that people – that you should have two sleeps, the idea of two sleeps. Yeah, it's actually a little different than the idea of two sleeps. So there was a time in sort of the Dickensian era where people would sleep for the first half of the night, maybe sort of four hours or so. Then they would wake up. They would socialize, they would eat, they would make love, and then they would go back and have a second sleep. If you look at natural biological rhythms in the brain and the body, that doesn't really seem to be how we were designed. It certainly seems to be something that we did in society, but I think it's more of a societal um, trend than it was a biological edict. However, we do seem to have two sleep periods the way that we were designed. Those tribes will often sleep about six and a half hours, seven hours of sleep at night. And then especially in the summer, they'll have that siesta-like behavior in the afternoon. And all of us have that. Sort of this, what's called the postprandial dip in alertness just means after lunch. And if I measure your brainwave activity with electrodes, I can see a drop in your physiological alertness somewhere between 2 to 4 p.m. in the afternoon. But is that dependent on diet? It's not. People think it is, you know, especially after they've had a heavy lunch. Yeah. You can actually just have people fast and sort of – well, fasting for long periods of time actually makes your sleep much worse. But um, you can have people abstain from lunch and you still get that drop. So it's independent of food. It's a genetically hardwired pre-programmed drop that suggests we should be sleeping biphasically. But is that dependent upon their standard diet? Because if if someone is on a a carbohydrate-rich diet, a lot of times you do get that spike and then you crash. Crash. But when people are on low-carb and high-fat, fat diets, they don't get that, and they, they, they tend to be more even with their energy through the day? Yeah. So, yeah, that sort of more constant release of energy can actually help you sort of almost combat that lull. But, but that, that lull exists that, no matter what. Exactly. So even if you don't think it exists, it's there. It's still present. Interesting. Yeah. So why did they do that in the, the, the Dickens era? Why did they what, – what, is there a root cause of their double sleep thing? We don't know. I mean it's hard to sort of really go it's back. Fascinating. This, yeah, it's incredible. That, that was a know, trend. Yeah, that it was a movement. That they would just wake up and do things and – Yeah. Maybe it's because they didn't have TV. And they yeah. didn't know what to do with themselves. Yeah. <laughs> well, sounds like they did some pretty interesting yes. things, which were nice. But yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, they created a lot of art then too, right? A lot of but writing and yeah. a lot of fascinating stuff came out of that time. Now, when you're um, when when you're measuring, kind of stop right in the middle of that. No, that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, biphasic sleeping is kind of interesting. I've had that happen to me like organically sometimes. Mm-hmm. And if mm-hmm. I just go with it, I feel fine. Like I'll wake up at like three or four, do a few things, and go back to sleep. Hmm. But it, it doesn't happen all the time, just once in a while. Yeah, for me too, sometimes. It's yeah. still aggravating though. I'd rather be <laughs> sleep all exactly. the way through and get it over. With. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Especially if you have I to mean, get up and go to work at a certain time. Yeah. Then it's like yeah. it's not. Yeah, it's like it's it's those that whole biphasic th- sleep thing kind of assumes that you kind of have a lifestyle that would support it. Mm-hmm. So right. like, yeah, if you could sleep whatever time you wanted to in the morning, then yeah, okay. Maybe you could get away with like being awake for an hour in the middle of the night or even yeah. the siesta thing too. It's like, yeah, you could sleep six and a half hours as long as you had the opportunity to nap at yeah. two o'clock in the afternoon. But like, yeah. you know, especially in the Western world, there's not a hell of a lot of people who have that opportunity. Right. Well, what's interesting to note here is that you do have um, chronotypes. 
So you have different people um, who basically follow... They have the same sort of set circadian rhythm, but it's set at different times. So you have early birds and then you have night owls. And that's kind of uh, independent of of light exposure. So you'll have um, t- teenagers typically their their circadian rhythm gets later um, as they enter at, into adolescence, late adolescence, and then as they become adults, it, it comes back again and it becomes earlier. But you have some people who naturally uh, go to sleep a lot earlier and wake a lot earlier, and then other people who go to sleep much later and wake up much later. And that seems to be, I mean, he speculates um, that the possible sort of evolutionary benefit for this was that if you had a tribe of people and they all um, went to sleep at the same time for eight hours... Um, then that would be eight hours that the tribe was essentially unprotected from other tribes or predators or something. Whereas by um, by essentially designing it so that some go to bed earlier and some go to bed later, it shortens the period of time by which um, the tribe is essentially unprotected. So you had people there would be like a four hour window from say like 11 until three or 12 until four um but then you'd have the early birds who were starting to wake up uh, likewise when the early birds go to bed you've got the the night owls who stay awake that little bit longer um so i thought that yeah hmm. that was interesting and i i don't know how you'd be able to tell what your chronotype is there's a couple of books about it i haven't read them read them but i used to think that i was a night owl but when i fixed my light environment it turns out that i'm really an early bird you know i'll yeah. go to bed at like nine and wake up at like half five every day Same um yeah and that was interesting so i think to really find out what uh, you know what sort of chronotype you are you have to sort of fix your light environment um, <laughs> and sort of deal with that I just wanted to say also there was one thing that we haven't touched upon but that I find really worth mentioning and this is on the benefits of sleep uh, is actually meal timing so they've shown that, that there's like tons of research basically showing that when you eat a meal late at night say before I don't know Anywhere before four to three to four hours before you go to bed, it does drastically reduce your um, sleep quality. Mm-hmm. And so, um, what was I going to say? Yeah, no. So there's there's research basically showing that you can feed um, rodents. You can feed two sets of rodents the exact same diet, and one will get obese, and one will stay lean and healthy. And the only difference is, is the meal timing, is the disrupted mm. circadian rhythm. Mm. Um, likewise, in human studies, you can show that there's studies on time-restricted feeding. So um, there's studies basically showing that eating within an eight-hour window um, can rapidly increase insulin sensitivity, increase weight loss, and improve overall health. Um, and so... Researchers were sort of wondering whether this was due to the time fasted, so 16 hours of fasting, and this could this could be attributed to to the benefits of of the of the time restricted feeding protocol. But what they've actually found is that okay, if you do time restricted feeding and you do it early on in the day, you get all of the benefits. 
But if you do time-restricted feeding and you do it later on in the day, you can actually make things worse. So now they're starting to think, okay, maybe it's not the fasting, which is ultimately so beneficial. Maybe it's the effects that it's having on the circadian rhythm. Because when you eat in the morning, you are setting your circadian rhythm. And when you're not eating just before bed or anywhere near bed, you are ultimately improving sleep. And and this seems to be the thing. And so I think food also ties into to sleep. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah, very interesting. So you said we should be eating more than four hours before you go to bed. Well, the research typically shows that anywhere after six o'clock or half six, uh, it does disrupt sleep quality. Mm-hmm. And it, 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 it basically disrupts blood glucose. Um, so there's a researcher, Alessandro Ferretti. He's done some work and he's basically shown that... Um, any eating at any point after half six in the evening can negatively impact on blood glucose. Um, blood glucose is is really quite a determining factor in how well someone sleeps. Because if you've got dysregulated blood glucose or too high or something, then it can actually influence the way that uh, melatonin is secreted and uh, and and it influences cortisol and stuff like that. Well, I've played around with my eating times a lot. And one thing that I noticed, I don't know if I noticed the whole time, but if I eat too early, like maybe around three or earlier, my last meal of the day, I'll wake up in the middle of the night hungry. But if I eat around six, I'm fine all throughout the night. Hmm. But I I guess... Sorry, John. Sorry, Elliot. No, not at all. I was going to say... I'd be interested, like, to know what um, what was the composition of the meal. Mm-hmm. It's usually because lower, lower in carbs, not very carb heavy. Okay, yeah. Uh, Maybe it's just that could an individual. Be, thing. Yeah. Who knows? Yeah. But I did want to bring up and ask if any of you have tried it: uh, incline sleeping. Where no. you raise the head of your bed six to eight inches, not just the head, but the whole bed is tilted. Hmm. And hmm. you are at a five degree incline. And the way it works is that gravity, like if you picture a tree, uh, gravity will pull the denser sap down to the bottom of the tree and then the lighter sap will be at the top. And then it kind of just flows into this cycle where the the dense sap and the light sap kind of changes places. So that is the theory behind this inclined sleeping. It's supposed to be really good for circulation and uh, breathing and glymphatic drainage, and it helps with migraines. So no one's ever tried hmm. it. So yeah. it's your your head above your feet? Yes. Your head yeah. is raised up. Like you can put a wedge in it. Some people have made like special inclined beds yeah. on their own. But I think they sell they sell these little wedge things on Amazon. Oh, because I always heard that you shouldn't fall asleep like in a chair too much or sit for too long, despite this, the obvious, because like different. deep vein thrombosis. So yeah, you don't get that. Yeah, you're lying flat. It's not gotcha. just your head or your back that's tilted up. Your whole bed whole... is tilted. Right. Gotcha. Yeah. Huh. So no, I've never tried it. Interesting experiment. Yeah. Very interesting. 
Yeah, the um, the regular diet thing, I noticed that too, for sure. I mean, well, I think it's a no-brainer for anybody who's tried or does like the keto diet or the low-carb diet generally um, that you don't nap as much or even at all. Like, Doug, you had mentioned that earlier, and I feel the same way. I mean, unless I've, like, done a coding marathon or something, I'm not usually napping. Um, yeah. It's got to be pretty drastic to take a nap during the middle of the day. But if I stray off my diet and have – you know, too many carbs or something or some sugar or something like that, immediately two o'clock in the afternoon on the nose, I'm like wiped out. Mm. So at least for me, it's a, it's a really clear correlation. So I, I think in that clip, Rogan meant something different when he's, or Matthew Walker meant something different when, when he said, when Rogan said, you know, is it because of diet? I think Walker was talking about like when you eat, not necessarily what you eat overall. So, I mean, I do think that the lower carb diet improves that ability to sustain energy during the day and not, you know, yeah. and have more regular sleep. But I don't know if that's, you know, a hundred percent here and there, cause there's also some evidence that we can handle more glucose in the summer and there's things like that. So it's just really complicated. Um, but for myself, if I'm low carb, I'm not tired. That's pretty much a one-to-one -one correlation. Okay. Yeah. We, what Matthew Walker was talking about was, um, from what I understand is the circadian rhythm of the various hormones mm -hmm. so what one of the hormones which is really high in the morning is cortisol um, and what typically happens at around 2 p.m. is you get a drastic decrease in the natural rhythm of co in in the the um, Sorry, you, you you basically get less cortisol. Okay, your cortisol levels go down about two o'clock in the afternoon, and they should go continually down until you get to bedtime. You go to sleep, and then it raises in the morning again. Um, and so with that, there's also a, a, another brain chemical called orexin, and this is what basically um, is involved in in arousal and wakefulness. And those kinds of things, making you feel sleepy or making you feel awake. And so with the drop in cortisol, you also get, um, it, it basically affects the orexin pathways in the brain. And this is, uh, I think this is what he's talking about is the circadian rhythm of the stress hormones making you feel tired or sleepy. And so with the drop in the cortisol, that what comes with that naturally is a, is a, um, an inclination to go to sleep. Hmm. Uh, he had also mentioned not just like reducing screen time, but turning the lights down in the house. And uh, I did. So also part of the reason, like before the show, like I said, we were inspired by Matthew Walker. Well, he was just on Joe Rogan's show and I had heard that. And that's what got me thinking about sleep more. So my girlfriend and I started doing that. We're like, okay, we're going to go to bed soon. So let's like turn 90% of the lights off. And sure enough, without fail, you just start immediately feeling like, okay, like I feel like I can sleep. You don't feel like you're going to have to try to go to bed. You know, it mm -hmm. just kind of naturally comes about. So uh, even if, you know, I'm like on Slack or something on the phone, uh, then, uh, you know, turning the lights down in the house. And I think it's psychological as well as physical. It kind of gets you into that space. But that seems to work really well. So uh, I think we are kind of coming up on our time. Let's go to the pet health segment for today. Zoya has prepared something for us. Yes. Oh, 
technical difficulty. Hold on one oh, no. sec. <laughs> hold on, hold on. Dum, 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 dum. Hello and welcome to the Pet Health segment of the Health and Wellness Show. This week's topic is Schrodinger's Cat, a thought experiment in quantum mechanics. Austrian physicist Erwin Schrodinger, one of the founders of quantum mechanics, posed this famous question. If you put a cat in a sealed box with a device that has a 50% chance of killing the cat in the next hour, what will be the state of the cat when the time is up? An important disclaimer that no cat was actually harmed in this experiment and while making this segment. Listen to the recording and have a great weekend. Austrian physicist Erwin Schrödinger is one of the founders of quantum mechanics, but he's most famous for something he never actually did, a thought experiment involving a cat. He imagined taking a cat and placing it in a sealed box with a device that had a 50% chance of killing the cat in the next hour. At the end of that hour, he asked, what is the state of the cat? Common sense suggests that the cat is either alive or dead, but Schrödinger pointed out that according to quantum physics, at the instant before the box is opened, the cat is equal parts alive and dead at the same time. It's only when the box is opened that we see a single definite state. Until then, the cat is a blur of probability, half one thing and half the other. This seems absurd, which was Schrodinger's point. He found quantum physics so philosophically disturbing that he abandoned the theory he had helped make and turned to writing about biology. As absurd as it may seem, though, Schrodinger's cat is very real. In fact, it's essential. If it weren't possible for quantum objects to be in two states at once, the computer you're using to watch this couldn't exist. The quantum phenomenon of superposition is a consequence of the dual particle and wave nature of everything. In order for an object to have a wavelength, it must extend over some region of space, which means it occupies many positions at the same time. The wavelength of an object limited to a small region of space can't be perfectly defined, though, so it exists in many different wavelengths at the same time. We don't see these wave properties for everyday objects because the wavelength decreases as the momentum increases, and a cat is relatively big and heavy. If we took a single atom and blew it up to the size of the solar system, the wavelength of a cat running from a physicist would be as small as an atom within that solar system. That's far too small to detect, so we'll never see wave behavior from a cat. A tiny particle like an electron, though, can show dramatic evidence of its dual nature. If we shoot electrons, one at a time, at a set of two narrow slits cut in a barrier, each electron on the far side is detected at a single place at a specific instant, like a particle. But if you repeat this experiment many times, keeping track of all the individual detections, you'll see them trace out a pattern that's characteristic of wave behavior, a set of stripes, regions with many electrons separated by regions where there are none at all. Block one of the slits and the stripes go away. This shows that the pattern is a result of each electron going through both slits at the same time. A single electron isn't choosing to go left or right, but left and right simultaneously. This superposition of states also leads to modern technology. An electron near the nucleus of an atom exists in a spread-out wave-like orbit. Bring two atoms close together, 
and the electrons don't need to choose just one atom, but are shared between them. This is how some chemical bonds form. An electron in a molecule isn't on just atom A or atom B, but A plus B. As you add more atoms, the electrons spread out more, shared between vast numbers of atoms at the same time. The electrons in a solid aren't bound to a particular atom, but shared among all of them, extending over a large range of space. This gigantic superposition of states determines the ways electrons move through the material, whether it's a conductor, or an insulator, or a semiconductor. Understanding how electrons are shared among atoms allows us to precisely control the properties of semiconductor materials like silicon. Combining different semiconductors in the right way allows us to make transistors on a tiny scale, millions on a single computer chip. Those chips and their spread out electrons power the computer you're using to watch this video. An old joke says that the internet exists to allow the sharing of cat videos. At a very deep level though, the internet owes its existence to an Austrian physicist and his imaginary cat. Are those goats there or not there? I'm not sure. <laughs> sure, there's goats. <laughs> well, thank you, Zoya. That was fascinating. Uh, I think that we'll just go ahead and uh, and wrap up for today. I mean, we've given some tips, some techniques for getting better sleep. I think the salient point is don't take it for granted. Like, yeah. avoid falling into that trap where you think you can catch up or get away with a little bit, you know. And really try to be uh, to be regular about it. And uh, yeah, I've noticed for sure that seven hours, because I'll try to get away with six, you know. So I think I'm close, but it, I'm sure it's not working. Yeah. So I'm thinking the same thing. I need to. Yeah. I need to work on my sleep hygiene a bit. Yeah. And uh, weight loss too. That was another thing. I mean, <clears throat> I know Walker talked about it, but that was in part of the material that I was reading as well is that if you are struggling with weight loss or trying to do that and not, it's not working very well, regular healthy amounts of sleep appear to do that. So mm -hmm. that's another thing. Yeah. yeah just, just yeah. to quickly, just quickly add a note about that. Cause this is really interesting as well. People think weight loss is all about food, but it's actually not all about food. It's how mm. your body kind of deals with that food as well. And weight mm. loss by definition basically means, uh, leptin resistance. So there is a hormone called leptin and it makes you feel full. Um, and it's basically like energy status in the body. And, um, and so people who are overweight, um, basically, become less responsive to this leptin hormone which makes them feel full after eating and so they typically get into a rut where they consume way more calories than they actually need to because they're not feeling full um, and so the really the primary control of leptin sensitivity is uh, is actually the circadian rhythm so it's been shown that you can induce leptin sensitivity and increase weight loss um, just by getting that robust sort of circadian rhythm going and, you know, a steady sort of seven to nine hours sleep um, per night. There you go. Better health, uh, weight loss, better thinking, all sorts of stuff. Better brain. So, better brain. So uh, we encourage everybody to look into that. 
do that. Try it out for yourself. Try to sleep better. And uh, thanks, everybody, for tuning in today and to people for participating in the chat. Uh, be sure to check out the SOT Radio Show on Sunday at noon Eastern time. Uh, go to radio.sot.net. And uh, we will catch you next week. Okay. Thanks, everybody. Goodbye, everyone. Bye. 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 Bye.